turn to Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. Today's sermon is part four of our examination of the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. The conclusion is found, as I said, in Matthew chapter 7, specifically verses 13 through 27. Now, we've been in the Sermon on the Mount for quite a bit of time now, and um, this is uh, part of our sermon series. As you, if you've been at Harbin's, you're familiar that this is part of our sermon series called Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ, which is a verse-by-verse chronological study of the earthly life and ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we're doing that by using all four of the Gospels, so we're harmonizing the Gospels. And our desire with this series is to see Christ more fully and therefore worship Him more rightly. Now, the Sermon on the Mount is the most famous of all of Jesus' recorded discourses. And this was a sermon delivered specifically to his disciples. This is very important for us to remember. I've said this every week, especially during the conclusion. It's important for us to remember that Jesus is speaking specifically to, to us, to Christians, to those who claim to be his disciples. Now, the conclusion of the sermon has four parts, and we've taken the past three weeks to study the first three parts, and we come today to this final part. And as we said, Jesus, like any good preacher, he concludes his sermon with application. And in his application here, Jesus is challenging his disciples and calling them to action. So for the Christian here this morning, this is a challenge and a call to action for you and for me. And in this challenge, well, this is the challenge that he gives. He's already been given the challenge here in the first three parts of the conclusion. And the challenge is this. There are some who claim to be Christ's followers who are not really Christ's followers. There are some who claim to be Christian, who claim to be on the right road of discipleship, who are not. John Newton, a famous English preacher who wrote Amazing Grace, said this. When I get to heaven, I shall see three wonders there. The first wonder will be to see people there I did not expect to see. The second wonder will be to miss many persons whom I did expect to see. And the third and greatest wonder of all will be to find myself there. I love those thoughts. In verses 13 through 14, Jesus showed us that there are some who claim to be disciples, yet they have chosen the wide gate and the easy road that leads to destruction instead of the narrow gate where they're stripped of sin and self and the hard and lonely road of discipleship which is filled with turmoil and affliction. In verses 15 through 20, Jesus warns us that there will be false teachers who lead people down that wide road. And so true disciples are to be vigilant, to be, to be looking at the fruit that comes out of their lives, the conduct of their character, the, the consequence of their ministry, and the content of their teaching. And of course, false teachers produce false converts. And so verses 21 through 23, we saw that not everyone who professes Jesus as Lord, Lord, is entering into the kingdom of heaven. There are some who, who seem to be theologically orthodox, uh, emotionally intense, And have a powerful ministry who are not actually true believers. Because in their day-to-day lives there is no true desire to follow God's will. Or even obedience to follow God's will. And that leads us up to and leads into today's text verses 24 through 27. So please stand now as we read the conclusion of the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. But we're actually going to read the whole thing verses 13 um, through 20. Actually we're going to read through 29 today. So I'm going to read... The little portion at the end of the Sermon on the Mount where uh, Matthew tells us how the people reacted to the sermon. So beginning in verse 13, we're going to read all the way down to verse 29. We stand because 
we believe this is authoritative word that we hear right now. Matthew 7, verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Let's pray. Father, help us to, this morning to see where the authority resides. The authority does not reside in me, nor does the authority reside in the individual interpreter of Scripture. The authority resides in the Son, through whom you have spoken in these final days. Jesus is the authority. So, Father, I pray this morning that you would help us submit to what Jesus has to say here. Holy Spirit, do a work in our heart. Open our ears to not only hear the word this morning, but move in us that we'll be people who do it. And grant me grace, Lord, to speak it rightly. So we ask all these things in the authority of the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, you may be seated. This morning, as you're um, just hang out right there in, the, in, the, in your spot, I've got a little illustration to do this morning. When, when I used to be a kid and I had, um, whether you go to a restaurant and you go sort of get the kid's menu or you get um, like a, a, a book of fun activities, one of my favorite activities to do was a spot the difference activity, right? Where you got one picture over here and you got another picture over here. So here you go, kids. I've got a spot the difference for you here this morning. So I'm going to bring it up on the screen. There's the biblical story of Mary and Martha and Jesus. And can you spot any differences between those two pictures? Up here? Okay. There's one difference. Any other differences? We're not going to go through all of them. We don't have time. There's like 12. All right. There's, oh, I didn't even see that one. All right. No water in the pot. Good. 
What else? Jesus' robe. Right, the color here. Right? Okay, one more. Way in the back. Kyler. Left hand is, oh, yeah, right there. There we go. One more on the left side. It's mostly adults over here. You can participate. Come on. Amy Kate. Okay, stripe. What stripe? On the, oh, right here on the front pot. There we go. Okay. I'm not wasting your time here. One more. One more. Here we go. How about that one? Yeah, it's a tough one. But there's a major difference between the two of them. You see, this right one over here, I put a filter on it to help depixelize some of the picture. And I also put a filter on it to, to improve the quality of the picture. I ran like four or five filters on it. And you can't see a single one of them. Okay? But these two pictures are just as different as those other two pictures. I did a whole lot in Photoshop to this picture here that actually, by the, from the naked eye, can't be seen. Can't be seen. Now, if you got up here and looked really closely, you could probably tell a little bit of a difference between the two, but you can't see it. You see, the other two was pretty obvious. Okay? There's lots of stuff to see. But this one, it's not so obvious. And when we come to today's text, there are two houses that Jesus speaks of being built. And from all outward appearances, and this is what he's been getting at in this whole conclusion, from all outward appearances, what they say, from all outward appearances, what they look like, it's the same. But there's something fundamentally, foundationally different. One will crumble and one will stand. In today's text, we see two different types of disciples. Just as we've been seeing through this whole conclusion, one false, one true. They both look the same. You might not be able to spot the difference. That's because the differences are in the foundation on which their life is truly built. And foundations normally can't be seen. Foundations are under the structure, buried in the ground. There is a type of discipleship that is built on solid footing. And there is another type of discipleship that isn't. And from just a cursory glance and a superficial examination, they may look the same, but deep down hidden is the truth, and it will eventually be exposed. So in this final portion, this conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is giving us a call to action. He is, in essence, ending his sermon with an invitation. No, he isn't asking Bartholomew and Thaddeus to play one more stanza of just as I am as Peter, James, and John stand down front to, to receive people. That's not what kind of invitation I'm talking about. But he is giving us an invitation nonetheless. An invitation to act on what we have just heard in this sermon. We see that in the word then in verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine. The word then is the word therefore. And you guys have heard it probably way too many times. If there's a therefore, you need to ask what it's there for. In other words, it's tying us back to everything else that has just been said. So it could be translated like this. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine. Therefore, in light of all that I have said, therefore I am now calling you to action. In essence, Jesus is asking us, with all that I have said, how should you now live? 
So that's the question before us this morning and the first thing in your notes. How should we now live? That's the invitation. That's the call to action. You've heard the sermon now. How are you going to live? And the first thing I want us to ask is how should we now live, first of all, in light of the authority that Jesus claims to have? In light of the authority that Jesus claims to have. He says, everyone then who hears these words of mine. Jesus does not appeal to any authority outside of himself. He doesn't need to. Now, I need to. I may quote another pastor or an author or a historical figure like John Newton to help prove that what I'm saying is accurate, but not Jesus. There's no footnotes in Jesus' sermon. The rabbis of Jesus' day constantly referred to other rabbis' teachings and, and older rabbinic literature and traditions, but not Jesus. He proclaimed to us that he is the final authority. And even when he quotes the Old Testament in this sermon, he declares his authority over it. You have heard it said, but I say to you, is the pattern we saw back in chapter 5. In this sermon, he has declared that in his teaching... And in his person, because he himself came to fulfill the law, in his teaching and in his person, he is the final say. He is the final authority. In him, we have the only proper interpretation of the scriptures. In him, we have the only proper interpretation of the Old Testament. That's why, and I said this in the class earlier today, that's why a Christ-centered or Christocentric or gospel-centered or cross-centered, whatever word you want to give it, but a Christ-centered hermeneutic, meaning the way we interpret Scripture, is vital to our understanding of the whole book. Christ is the centerpiece of our hermeneutical principles when it comes to the Scriptures. Luke 24, verses 25 through 27 teach this. Luke 24, 44 teaches this. John 5, 39 teaches this. John 5, 46 teaches this. Hebrews 1, 1, long ago at many times and many places, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. That teaches that as well. He is the authority. And that's what he is saying here as he finishes this sermon. Everyone who hears these words of Mine. Jesus is the final authority over Scripture because he is the author of all Scripture. At its root, the word authority, and you can see it there in the word. Let me just ask kids, what other word is in the word authority? The word what? Author. At its root, the word authority means go to the one who wrote it. That's what it means. Go to the one who is the author. Go to the one who constructed it. Go to the one who gave it meaning. Go to the one who gave it reality. Go to the one who installed it with truth. It was refreshing this week. If you follow politics and stuff, there was a a decision in, I think it was the 6th District of the Federal Courts by Judge Jeffrey Sutton who ruled against gay marriage and based his ruling on, lo and behold, the Constitution. And he went back and he said, there is no way that the framers could have possibly meant what people are trying to do with the Constitution in regards to gay marriage. There's no way the framers could have had that type of intent. In other words, he was saying, what were the authors 
saying. If the Constitution is going to have any authority, then we have to know what the authors meant. If we stretch the Constitution beyond what the authors meant, then it becomes a weak document. And that's what's happening in our country. It's becoming a weak, weak document. It can't uphold what our country is doing to it. Eventually it will collapse because we have removed the authority from it because we've taken it away from what the authors meant it to say. And the same thing is true with the Scriptures. Jesus is the author and thus he himself is the authority over all of the scriptures. In today's text, Jesus equates his words. He says, these words of mine, verse 24. He equates his words with the Father's will, which he mentioned back in verse 21. He talked about doing the Father's will. So it's the same thing. The Father's will is the same thing as his word. John 12, 49, Jesus says, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given me a commandment. What to say, what to speak, and I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Jesus' authority is the same as the Father's authority, in other words. Jesus' authority is the same as his Father's, just as Jesus' words are the same as his Father's. So we can take Jesus' command to hear these words of mine, and we can see that we have a much broader application To hear these words of mine directly in this text refers to the words of this sermon. So Jesus is specifically speaking to the things he's just said. But at the same time, in this very sermon, he has declared um, interpretive authority over all the scriptures. And in light of who he is, the word made flesh, and in light of what he has done, he has fulfilled all the law. We are to keep all of his word, meaning we are to keep all that he wrote, meaning we are to keep all the scripture. So by virtue of our union with Christ and him as Lord and Savior, we can obey his word. At least true disciples can. 1 John 5, 1 says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God. That we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Jesus' commandments are not burdensome. They are not crushing. They are not oppressive to the one who knows him. This does not mean that true disciples do not struggle to obey God's word. We do. Sometimes it's not easy. But we obey out of genuine love flowing from a real relationship of knowing him. And therefore our obedience is empowered by his spirit in us. And thus it is a happy and a willing obedience. We are now free to obey. Before you came to Christ, you were not free to obey the word of God. You couldn't. You were enslaved to your sinful nature. But now we are free to obey. And there is a surety and forgiveness when we fall short. It is a peaceful obedience built on the rock-solid expectation that one day we will obey without ceasing 1 John 3, 2 says, We are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. What assurance. It's like standing on the rock in the middle of a flood. How should we live then in light of the authority of Jesus? That's the question hanging in the air. How should we live? According to Hebrews 12, 2, he is also the founder or the author and perfecter of our faith. And thus we submit to his authority as the author of our faith. And we go forth in confidence with the authority of Christ. Because in Matthew 28, 18, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. We live in the light of his authority. 
And all those listening to, to Jesus' sermon here, they saw Jesus' authority on display. I mean, that's why I included the very end uh, of, the, of the Sermon on the Mount where there's, there's Matthew's comment here. And he says, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. But of course, not everyone submits to that authority. You know, I, I, it reminds me of um, Benjamin Franklin became friends with, um, with George Whitfield. And Benjamin Franklin wrote several things about Whitfield. And, uh, but Benjamin Franklin, as far as we know, never became a believer. The last month before his death, he wrote down that he was not a believer. So we have no evidence that Benjamin Franklin was ever a believer. But he had massive admiration for George Whitfield. He would stand back and watch this man preach. He could preach to 20,000 people in the open air. And he would just be amazed. And, and Franklin would even tell funny stories about how he wasn't going to give anything when the offering plate came around. But he was so struck by the authority of the words coming out of Whitfield's mouth that he, just, he couldn't help himself. He just ended up giving money anyway. Benjamin Franklin is like many of the people at the end of this sermon. They're awed by the authority of the word. But they never submit to the authority of the word. True believers submit to the authority of Christ and therefore begin to build their life on solid, solid ground. Not everyone, as I said, submitted to the authority of Jesus. They began to build on shaky ground. The shaky ground of foolish human philosophy, fallible human reason. And fluctuating human opinion. Shaky ground that cannot endure the storm that will definitely come. So the question Jesus' conclusion beckons us to answer today is not only how should we now live in light of the authority that that Jesus claims to have. But how should we now live in light of the trials that Jesus says will come. How should we now live in light of the trials that Jesus says will come. Verse 25. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Now the storms here can be understood, at least to a degree, as the trials of life and difficulties of living in a fallen world. But I think Jesus has in mind specifically the difficulties associated with walking on a narrow road. In other words, the trials that come upon us because we claim to be Christians. Will we stand when the trials come? It's easy to say you're a Christian in the midst of comfort. It's difficult to say you're a Christian when the comfort disappears. Jesus has already said that there would be trials that come upon his disciples. Matthew 5 verse 11, just earlier in the sermon. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. We must remember again that Jesus is speaking to those who claim to be his followers here. So the picture really isn't... We need to understand this because I think when we, when we learned all of our little Bible stories and our songs that we sing about the wise man built his house upon the rock and you know, all that kind of stuff. Okay, I think what we're normally thinking is that there's Christians who build their house on the rock and, and then there's non-Christians who don't build their house on the rock. And so when troubles come, obviously the non-Christians, their house is going to collapse because it's not built on the rock. But that's not the picture that Jesus is drawing for us here. The picture is that there's two people that claim to be Christians. There are two paths that claim to be Christian paths. There's two prophets that claim to be Christian prophets. There's two types of professors or, or people who confess Jesus, who claim to be confessing Jesus. And now there's two houses that appear to be or claim to be Christian houses. But one is built on rock 
And one is built on sand. And therefore, when that test comes and those trials come and that persecution comes and when you're made fun of for being a Christian and when the culture says it's, it's stupid and idiotic to be a Christian, you're on the wrong side of history, whatever term they want to use, will you stand? There's the test of whether or not that house is true or not. So that's the picture Jesus is drawing here. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted him, they will persecute us. So he says in verse 26, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Trials expose whether or not our faith is true. That's why the enemy loves to convince Christians that the Christian life is easy. Satan will gladly work through preaching that will tell you life is great for the Christian. It will always be great so long as you just have the right amount of faith. It's going to go easy for you financially. Everything's smooth. Satan loves to teach people that because it causes people to put their house on sand. Instead of rock. Trials will expose the nature of one's faith. Matthew 13 verse 20 says this. And this is the parable of the sower. Remember the second and third types of seed. Matthew 20 verse, I'm sorry, Matthew 13 verse 20. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Will your faith stand or will it fall? And if it falls, the fall will be grand, it'll be public, it'll be catastrophic. Great was the fall of it. And this great fall corresponds with the departure from the presence of Jesus in verse 23 to the fire that we see in verse 19 and the destruction that we see in verse 13. In other words, this great fall is a fall into hell. So how should we then view trials Doesn't this change the way we look at trials? Shouldn't we view them as gifts of grace? For I would rather be tested by fire to see that my faith is real than to go through a life of privilege and protection only to find out that it was a farce. So in light of that, we should see trials as grace. As we've already read this morning in 1 Peter, but also James chapter 1 verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect. That you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Oh, we should, we should say amen to that. It is grace when we receive trials. Thank you, Father, for the rain. Thank you for the flood. Thank you for the wind. Thank you for the storm. And in light of seeing trials as as a test of our faith, then we can see the difficulties God allows in our life to be good gifts from our Father with glorious designs behind them. 
Namely, to make us look like Jesus, right? Romans 8, 28, you all know this verse. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. And he goes on, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Thank you, Father, for the good pain and purifying trials that you've graciously allowed to come into our lives. What sanctifying grace he allows to come into the lives of his children. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that it's easy, nor that we won't have many tears, nor that we won't be required to have much endurance. But God is faithful. He has said that he will carry his true children through the storm. Our task is to humbly submit to his providential plan even when he plans pain for us. 1 Peter 5.10 says, After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That word establish in 1 Peter 5.10 the word thamilio, okay, it is the same word translated founded in verse 25 when Jesus says, talks about our faith being founded on the rock. It's a verb meaning to lay a sure and solid foundation. God will establish, he will lay a strong foundation for those who are truly his disciples, who themselves stand on that strong foundation by doing his will. And those who have houses which are their lives that are built on the sure foundation of God's word, they will stand. And those are those who not only hear God's word, but also do God's word. So how should we now live? That's the question. In light of the authority that Jesus claims to have through this whole sermon, and in light of the trials that he has said will come upon true disciples, that's the question, and here's the answer. We should live in confident submission to every word, that comes from the mouth of Jesus. Confident submission. Confident submission. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Confident because we hear the word of God and we in faith step out onto those words in belief and therefore we are sustained. Confident because his words are steady and they are true and they are eternal. Isaiah 40 verse 8 says, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Therefore, we step out confidently when we have faith in what God has said in this book. These are solid, immovable, unshakable, firm words. This is indeed a firm foundation. So it's confident submission. Submission meaning we do the words of Jesus. You don't have much confidence in the word of God if you're not doing the word of God. If you sit here and you say, oh yeah, I believe this is my sure foundation, and then you live a life where you do everything opposite of this book here, then you're not really putting any confidence in the book. you like the little kid like I was that said, oh, I'm not scared to jump off the high dive, but would never be willing to climb up and show everybody. You say you have confidence in God's word, but you only truly have confidence in God's word if you're submitting to his lordship. 
in your life, submitting to his word. We don't just profess Jesus' lordship, we put his lordship into practice. We don't just listen to his words, we live out his words, we do them. Doing the words of Jesus is what distinguishes the false convert from the true. Doing the words of Jesus is absent from the message and life of a false teacher. Doing the words of Jesus is what makes the road to eternal life hard and narrow. The word, the Greek word here, do, poieo, is the word. And it's found throughout this conclusion, but you really can't see it. Let me go back to verses um, 17 through 19. This word poieo here is translated bear in those words. So look at it here. So every healthy tree that bears good fruit. But let's replace it. Let's replace it with the word poieo. I mean, that's the word. It's the word do. So every healthy tree does good fruit, but the diseased tree does bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot do bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree do good fruit. Every tree that does not do good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. We need to see that the bearing that Jesus talks about earlier is all about doing. The word do is all through this conclusion. Do, 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 do. Do the word. Do the will. Do it. You must do it. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom, but the one who poieo does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And Jesus goes on to show them that the false convert does stuff but doesn't do the will of the Father. Verse 22, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do, poieo, many mighty works in your name? And then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So we see there is a type of doing that looks religious, but it isn't actually doing the will of the Father. And Jesus has shown that doing the will of the Father is doing his words in the everyday obedience of life. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them. And by calling us to do his words, Jesus is asking his disciples, are you ready to be the people that I am asking you to be in this sermon? Are you ready, Harbin's Community Baptist Church, are you ready to be the type of people that I am calling you to be in this sermon? Are you ready for the radical discipleship I am calling you to in this sermon? Are you ready for the ordinary obedience that I am commanding you to exhibit in this sermon? Real Christians do all that he has commanded us. We should be doers of the word. We should live in obedience. We should live under lordship. We should exercise faith that is real. James 1.22, you know the verse. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Those who think that the true Christian life doesn't involve, let me say this very loudly, those who think that the true Christian life doesn't involve obedience and submission to his lordship are deceiving themselves and are fools. Foolish men building on a faith that is dead. But the man of Christ, the man of God, the man who truly believes in Jesus puts his word into practice and he is a wise man. Doing is the mark that our faith is truly alive. James 2, 14. What good is it then, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Well, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Verse 20. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? We are, of course, friends, not saying 
that doing works saves us. Scriptures never teach us that. No one is saved by their works. But anyone who is saved does work. As Martin Luther put it, salvation is by faith alone, but not by faith that is alone. Doing doesn't make us heaven bound. Instead, doing is the result of us already being heaven bound. True Christians are not, hope, are not hoping to be saved by doing God's will, but Christians who truly are saved are those who do God's will. Americans, we've got to stop living. We've got to stop living by, by pithy sayings and bumper sticker faith and start living by the, the full counsel of the word of God. I mean, there's a little saying out there, or I've seen it on bumper stickers and something along these lines. I probably don't have it just right. It says something like this, Christianity isn't about doing, it's about done. Well, yes and no. <laughs> no, we are not saved by doing anything But if we are saved and we aren't doing anything, then our faith isn't real. We can't live by these half sayings. We've got to know what the word of God says. It says we're not saved by our works, but it says certainly if you truly are saved and you will be doing God's will, you will be showing it by your works. Of course, you know Ephesians 2, 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. And then Titus 2, 14 tells us that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. People that are truly saved, people that have been redeemed from lawlessness and purified, brought into the people of God for his own possession, are people who are zealous for good works. That's what the scriptures teach us. So we are saved to do good works, but not by good works. As I heard another pastor say, and I think this is helpful, what makes a good work good is that you don't trust it to save you. As soon as you put hope in that good work, it ceases to be good. What makes a good work good is that you're not putting any any hope or any trust in it to save you. And the moment you put trust or hope in that good work to make you right with God, well, then it ceases to be a good work. And all it is is filthy rags. So we put our hope in Christ alone. So how sure is your footing this morning? Are you obeying? Are you submitting? Are you doing? Is Christ Jesus your Lord? Have you, as Paul calls on us to do in Ephesians 4, 22, put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness? Or as 1 John 2, 4 tells us, whoever says, I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. So Christians here this morning, or those who at least say you're Christians, who claim to be Christians this morning, are you living in confident submission to every word that comes out of the mouth of Jesus? How are you living in light of all that Jesus has shown us in the Sermon on the Mount? Are you living in an obedience that transforms your character into what we see in the Beatitudes? Are you submitting to Jesus in a way that you are a light in this dark world? Is there a greater righteousness in you? A righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees? Is that being seen in you? 
Are you surrendering to and trusting in the one who fulfilled the law for you and who calls you to, per- to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect? In other words, are you growing in holiness? Are you fighting the urge to practice your righteousness in a way to be seen by others? Has the, have the words of Jesus radically changed your ambitions so that you now seek first his kingdom and trust him to take care of everything else? Are you being conformed to our Lord's words so that all your relationships are radically transformed, even your relationships to enemies? Are you hearing the word and putting it into practice by entering the narrow gate and walking the hard road? If you are, then you are standing on sure footing, a sure foundation. But you know what? I can't spot the difference. Every single point of you can come into this room and say everything that I want to hear and convince everyone else that you're on that narrow, hard road. But the Lord knows the difference. He sees. He sees into the depths of the heart. So ask him this morning to do a work of examination in your heart. To the unbeliever here in this room this morning, the sandy foundation that your life is built upon will not stand. Since you do not profess Christ, you will not be subject to the storms of persecution that believers are subject to. But another storm is coming. Ezekiel 13, verse 13 says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will make a stormy wind break out in my wrath, and there shall be a deluge of rain in my anger, and great hailstones in wrath to make a full end. There is another storm on the way. The storm of God's righteous judgment against sin is coming. All throughout the ages, we see little glimpses of it breaking out. But there will one day be a day, that day of the Lord, when the storm breaks out in its full force. And according to Proverbs 12, verse 7, the wicked are overthrown and are no more, but the house of the righteous will stand. You will not stand in that day without Christ, my friend. You must repent of your sin and turn to him alone. You must believe in him, that he is the second person of the Godhead, that he became flesh and lived a sinless life, and that he died on a cruel cross to absorb God's wrath that was meant for sinners like you and I. And you must believe that God did indeed raise him from the dead. And if you believe in him and you turn from your sin, he will forgive you, for he has the authority to forgive sin. And he'll make you his son, the father's son, And he will set you on a sure foundation. And the Holy Spirit will be in you. And he will give you new desires. And he will give you the power to do the will of the Father. So come, stand on the rock this morning. Jesus is calling on you to repent. And put all your hope in him. For he is the only sure foundation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I know that in this room there are different people that have been through different trials and different storms. We even talked about that a little bit this morning in our Bible study. How, how the trials of life, how they mature us and make us the people you want to be. So Father, this morning my prayer is that there be anyone in this room who, who has been going through trials, either has gone through them or is in the middle of them right now or is fretting on the ones that are yet to come. If anyone has is, is experienced trials... And has been found themselves desperate, without hope, and have found themselves 
feeling like life isn't worth living and there's no meaning, then, Father, I pray that you'd help show them that their faith is not true. It is not real. But for those who are going through trials right now, difficulties, pain, maybe even persecution, Father, I pray that you'd help those who are truly your children to see that these trials have a good design behind them. The clouds that we so much dread will break with blessings on our head. Father, thank you so much. I have not enjoyed the trials of the past several weeks in my life. I would be a liar to stand up here and say that I did. But I can genuinely say thank you, Father, for what you've done in my life and are doing. So God, we praise you. We thank you for who you are. We ask that you would do a work in all of our hearts. This response time is for all of us to examine ourselves in light of your word. Are we doing what your son Jesus called us to do? So as we close this service now with a, a song, Lord, I pray that you be glorified, but you most of all be glorified not just in our singing, that you be glorified in the inner depths of our being where hearts are made soft, where rebellion that we're still holding on to is let go of, where we learn true repentance. I pray all this in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, our rock, Jesus Christ. Amen.